So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we've heard it read. Now we ask that you help us to understand it, uh, use it in our lives to change us and make us more like Jesus. We thank you that as we come together, you know all of our needs before we say anything. And so we pray that you'd meet us at the point of our need and encourage us through your promises. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1678, John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. It's reported to be the oldest English novel and also uh, the work that has had more influence in the English-speaking world than any other book besides the Bible. It's a story about a man named Christian who uh, is journeying from this world to the next world. And as the story goes, as he's making his journey, he encounters the giant despair who throws him in a dungeon. Christian doesn't know what to do, and so he prays. And as he prays, he remembers that he's been given a key. And this key will help him with his problem with despair. What's the key? Despair is an awful thing, isn't it? And my guess is if we went around the room, you would say, yes, I've known something of despair. Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's death. Maybe it's financial reversal. Lots and lots of reasons for despair. The section that we just read from Acts 27 is all about despair. So if you have a Bible and can turn to it, then we can follow along as we work down through that passage. Acts chapter 27, we're going to look at these verses that Lynn just read for us, verses 1 through 26. Now, we have seen Paul in lots of different circumstances. We know something of him in his pre-Christian days, Acts 7, 8, 9. Uh, we know about his conversion. We see him in Lystra, uh, outside, having been beaten for his faith, lying there presumably dead. We've seen him do church planting work, serve on a missionary team, and now he's, well, where is he? Paul is somebody who has appeared before five Roman officials. Let's count them. Gallio, Claudius Lysias, Festus, Felix, Agrippa. And all of them have one conclusion about his status before the Roman law. Innocent. So why is he on a boat to Rome? Because Luke is now going to show us Paul from a couple different angles, Paul the traveler and Paul the prisoner. We see him a little bit as a prisoner, but it's going to be more expanded here. He's going from Caesarea to Rome. Uh, there's no direct flight. 
And so he has to change boats. And we're going to get to that. Which raises the issue of water. There are lots of places in the Bible where water is very important. For example, go back to uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 6. Noah's flood. The Lord says, I'm bringing judgment on the earth because the wickedness of man has increased. And so he does. And then we fast forward to toward the end of the Old Testament to Jonah, the recalcitrant prophet. The Lord says, go to Nineveh. He says, no, I think I'd rather go to Tarsus. And uh, so the Lord sends a storm. Everybody on the boat wants to find out why they're caught in the middle of this travesty. And Jonah says, it's easy. I'm the problem. Throw me overboard. And the Lord prepares a ship, a, a fish. The fish swallows Jonah. He gets indigestion, lands him on the shore. And Jonah decides, after all, he will go to Nineveh, where he has a rather profitable, uh, successful ministry experience. And um, well, let's not forget what happens with the nation of Israel. They've been slaves for 400 years in Egypt. The Lord delivers them. And as they're fleeing Egypt, they see the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian army with its chariots behind them. And they're terrified, but no problem because the Lord can part the sea. They cross on dry land. The Egyptian army follows them and the judgment waters crash over them to their demise. Then we go to the New Testament. The uh, disciples are out on a storm-tossed sea at night, and to their utter panic, they see a ghost, they think, coming toward them on the water. Now, it's Jesus. And Jesus says, peace be still, and the waves calm down, and he gets into the boat with them, and they're saved. And uh, then there's one other reference to water that kind of works together these ideas of deliverance and judgment. Do you know what it is? Christian baptism. What happens when we're baptized? Well, Jesus said, talking about his own death, he says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized. He's talking about him going under God's judgment. And when Christians are baptized, what happens? We have water placed on us in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not to represent judgment, but rather deliverance from judgment. We've been saved because of the work of Christ. So those are a few of the references to water in the Bible. And what we want to do is just emphasize this idea that water can be an expression of God's judgment. All of the Roman authorities have said that Paul is innocent. But what will creation say about his innocence? Will he survive this trip from Caesarea to Rome? Or will God's judgment come on him? So that brings us now to these opening verses, and it's a passage that really gets to this issue of despair. I hope you'll see that. 
And I hope you'll be thinking about places where you have despaired and where you go in your despair because it's a word of hope as much as it is a word of despair. So there are five sections here, and we're just going to move down through them uh, and keep on emphasizing how this moves us closer and closer and closer to no hope. And then there's a twist at the end. So follow with me. What happens in those opening verses? Well, uh, we're told that it was decided that Paul would get on this boat. And so there's a centurion named Julius who's responsible for him. And there are other prisoners with him and the ship's captain and the ship's owner. And they're all on the boat. And how do things go? Well, initially, they go pretty well. You'll notice right away that we find there in verse, uh, let's see, which verse is it? Yeah, right in verse 1. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, who's the we? Well, it's Luke. There are a number of passages, sections of Acts, where we have these we references. Luke's on board. He's with Aristarchus, and he's with Paul, and he's with other uh, prisoners and sailors. And so they get off, and it's smooth sailing, and we're told that in verse 3 they get to Sidon, and Julius, the centurion who's in charge, he's kind toward Paul, as we see other Roman officials be kind toward him. And he says, yeah, you can go and see your friends if you would like to, and Paul does that. And they get back on the boat, and then they put out to sea, and verse 4 says, the winds were against us, and when we had sailed, we finally make it to Myra and Lycia. It's a rather uneventful introduction. Verse 6, 7, and 8 ramp, uh, ratchet things up just a little bit. They get on the boat, uh, a ship out of Alexandria sailing for Italy, and let's just make a comment about this Alexandrian ship. Uh, Alexandria in Egypt. Um, There was lots of commerce between Egypt and Alexandria. Uh, Part of it was uh, transportation of wheat. And so it's very likely that that's the cargo on this particular ship. It's going from Alexander. It's now stopped. Now it's going on to Rome. And then we're told... um, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snindus. As the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. So it's not quite the smooth sailing, and we wonder why. Well, now let's look at the next section, which is basically verses 9 through 12. The voyage now turns dangerous, we're told, uh, because even the fast was already over, and the fast, probably you have a note in your Bible. um, In mine it says, well, the fast was the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement... uh, 
is significant not because there was some connection between bad weather and the Day of Atonement, but just because the Day of Atonement marks that time of year. It's after the Day of Atonement. And now on the Mediterranean, at this point, it is dangerous sailing. So Paul speaks in verse 10, and he says, I perceive this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives and the centurion and the ship's captain and the owner don't pay any attention to Paul and they keep right on going. And then we are told, because the harbor wasn't suitable to spend the winter, the majority put out to sea and now we get to really the guts of this thing. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. Yeah, Paul, you're overstating the case. It's not a problem. Look, the wind is uh, helping us. We're going to make it. And then we read in verse 14, but. It's a very small Greek word. It is of huge importance. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. The ship was caught, couldn't face the wind. We gave way to it, and we were driven along. Uh, the commentators say this tempestuous wind, it may have been something like a cyclone or a tornado or a combination of them. They really don't know, but it was awful. And now they can't even take the ship in the direction that they want to go. They just have to let the ship go in the direction that the wind will take them. And they're scared. And you see that here. Look at verse... Uh, Look at verse 17. After hoisting up the ship's boat, apparently there was a small boat that you know they could go from the ship into shore or whatever. So they take that boat and they pick it up. After they've done that, then they use supports to undergird the ship. Now what's going on there? Well, you know what a ship is like. Um, it has a pointed front to it. They call it the bow, right? The bow, the ship is pointed. And... Um, these ancient ships didn't have some kind of fiberglass waterproof cover on them. They were wooden. And so as the boat is going along, you can imagine the waves crashing into it and challenging the seams on one plank against another. What will happen? So this is what sailors would do. They'd go up to the bow of the ship, they would take and drop a big rope over the front. So now we have rope on this side of the ship and rope on this side of the ship. And then they would work its way back. Maybe they would go back to two-thirds of the way back of the ship. And then they would bring up those ropes from the side and tighten them in the middle. And do it over again, I suppose. And then maybe over again. So there might have been three or four, who knows how many ropes trying to hold this ship together. But that's what they do. And it's an extreme measure, and you can imagine the wind blowing, 
and these guys that are on the boat don't have their rain suits. Uh, they're in street clothes, and they're soaking wet, and the wind is blowing, and I imagine they're cold. And then what happens? Since we were, verse, verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Imagine, this is the owner of the boat is on the boat, and he says, it doesn't look like we're going to survive. Get rid of the cargo. Take all the wheat, grain, whatever it is, throw it overboard. Not only that, we're also going to get rid of other parts of this, the, the shipping uh, industry. What, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. Now, maybe the mast, maybe the sails, out with a footlocker, any pottery, get that off this boat. We want to lighten this thing as much as we can. This is, these are desperate times. And Paul has, uh, Luke has a wonderful summary of how desperate in verse 20. Please look at it. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That's got to be one of the saddest verses in the Bible. All hope at last abandoned. Now let's just pause here and ask the question, why is Luke writing this? Well, you remember, Acts chapter 1, he's writing to a Gentile man named Theophilus, who, as best we can tell, is a new believer. And he's trying to show Theophilus what Jesus now continues to do from his exalted position in heaven. And he's doing that to motivate Theophilus to live a Christian life. But he's not just writing to Theophilus, he's writing to subsequent readers, like you and me, to help us to live a Christian life. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses wherever I send you. And so this narrative is given to support Theophilus and to support us when we are faced with situations in which we might despair. Which are those in your life where you have despaired? It's awful. You're at the end of your resources, right? You look yourself in the mirror and you think, there is nothing more that I can do. There's nobody who can help me. I'm all alone. That's where these sailors find themselves. All hope has been abandoned. Where do you go when all your hope is gone? It's an important question. 
And it's one that's worth addressing no matter where you are in your spiritual life. Because, you see, someday you will be at the end of your last resource. And then what will you do? Please look now at the last section. Verse 21. Since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Man, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Talk about saying the obvious. I wonder, you know, if Paul were here today, would we say that he was somebody who had a lot of emotional intelligence? I'm not sure. But then he goes on and he says, Yet now I urge you, take heart. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. How can Paul say that with such confidence? Take heart. You're at the end of your rope. There is no other place for you to go that you can see. And somebody comes along and says, take heart. I wouldn't need to take heart if I had already done my analysis and I could find that there's some way out because I would have already taken heart. But Paul says now, you're at the end of your rope, take heart. All right, how come? Well, he goes on and he says to us, this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. What? An angel came to Paul. We've seen this before, haven't we? An angel comes to Paul and he says, Paul, cheer up. He says, cheer up. And Paul passes on the word, cheer up because the angel has spoken to me and he says you're going to make it don't be afraid and then please notice verse 25 so take heart men for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told what words of encouragement whoa What promise was Christian given when he was in the dungeon of despair? What was, what, I'm sorry, what key was Christian given when he was in the dungeon of despair? Do you know? It's the key that had the word promise on it. And isn't that exactly what you need when you're despairing? Don't you need some kind of word from the Lord? And that's exactly what Paul brings to these hopeless sailors because that's what God had brought to him. There's reason for you to hope. There is a future that I have planned for you, the Lord is saying. Now, in Paul's case, what's the future? You are going to get to Rome and you're going to be able to speak to King Caesar. You're going to be able to speak to the emperor about your faith in Jesus Christ. So be hopeful, Paul. Remember, we have heard about Paul going 
to be before kings, but it hasn't happened yet. It's about to happen. And it's about to happen because it is established by the word of God. Is your future established by the word of God? Most certainly it is. And so he makes promises to us. Well, what are some of them? I will never leave you or forsake you. How about uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't depend on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your path. These sailors had come to the place where they had no hope. In whom were they trusting? Their own ability to read the signs of the storm and the likelihood of making it to land in one piece. They never imagined that the Lord would raise up a prophet among them who would speak words of peace to them and encourage them for the journey that was yet ahead. And that may be the way it is with you today, too. Maybe you are in despair and you have thought, I don't hear any word from a prophet who can speak to my hopelessness. Well, Jesus is that prophet. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. He says to his people, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is God's word to you today. You can take it to the bank. Are you taking it to the bank? That's the question. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus to take you not only through this life with its bumps and bruises, but are you trusting in Jesus to take you to his eternal home? Charles Tindley was a Methodist pastor who served in Philadelphia. There's actually a Tindley chapel that you could attend today if you wanted to. And he wrote, besides being a pastor, he wrote a number of songs. And one of them has these words to it. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When I'm in the midst of persecution, stand by me. In the midst of faults and failures, stand by me. When I'm old and feeble, stand by me. Will the Lord stand by you? Yes, he will. And so this is a time for you to preach to yourself, not listen to yourself about your despair. Preach to yourself the promises of God. And begin a week trusting in the Lord Jesus to guide you through circumstances, well, perhaps like Paul's. Maybe not quite like his, but maybe worse than his. But trust the Lord to guide you through those circumstances and provide for you and show his faithfulness to you. When the storms of life are raging, Stand by me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you to bless it to us. We pray that in our despair, you would help us so we don't depend on our own resources. Uh, 
Help us not to depend upon our reputation or our prominence in our profession or in our town. Help us instead to trust in you, the only hope for lost sinners. We ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to sing one more song. It's entitled, and the number is, say it again, 619. 619. Let's stand together and sing.